Um, we are happy to uh, have Ruach Hamidbar as a co-sponsor of today's program. Um, I know uh, Rabbi Grafstein, uh, Rebbe Zalman was one of her rabbis, and I, she's not on the call yet, but maybe will be soon. And I know many are interested in the Rebbe Zalman piece, and many are interested in the interreligious pioneer piece in particular. And uh, hopefully, whichever part you're coming for, you'll get a you'll get a, a taste or enough of uh, of each side. Um, so, friends, uh, we're here today with Rabbi Or Rose, who's the founding director of the Miller. Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership of Hebrew College. He has published widely on Jewish spirituality, social justice, and interreligious engagement. Mostly, most recently, Rabbi Rose co-edited the anthology, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, Essential Teachings, Orbis Books of 2020. Uh, Reb Orr is someone who I've been grateful to have learned from and partnered with. He is as creative as he is compassionate um, as, um, as rooted in pedagogy as he is uh, rooted in the text itself. So uh, very excited to be with you, Rabbi Orr, and to uh, engage in this learning, Rabbi Zaman Shakta Shalomi, interreligious pioneer. Friends, we have an hour together. The plan is 40 to 45 minutes of a presentation, followed by 15 to 20 minutes of, of, uh, of Q&A. So uh, Rabbi Rose, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you all. A special thanks to Reb Shmuley, who is, as usual, caffeine energized <laughs> and <laughs> transforming the world. And uh, thank you, AJ, also for your help on uh, connecting this afternoon and on other details leading up to today's session. So I want to uh, begin by saying that this presentation grows out of my own life experience. Uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi was a lifelong teacher and mentor of mine. He was my sandik, which means that he wow. told me <laughs> as I was entered into the covenant um, during my bris. He gave me my first talit as a bar mitzvah boy. And of course, if you know anything about Reb Zalman, it was multicolored. It was a rainbow talit. <laughs> and he's one of the rabbis that ordained me uh, in the early 2000s. And so I come to this work, to this research and presentation with a great deal of affection and also with a commitment to try and learn from and build upon the legacy of this pioneering figure in Jewish life and in interreligious life in North America. When Reb Zalman died in 2014, as a way of trying to continue my relationship with him, I turned really for the first time to his writings and immersed myself in published works and in unpublished works and letters and outlines from courses and workshops and um, the reason why I hadn't read him quite as carefully in the past is that in fine Hasidic form, he was a masterful oral teacher. He was one of the greatest spontaneous charismatic teachers that I had ever encountered and had this unusual ability to make any mundane moment into an opportunity for elevation and sanctification. And so my relationship with him was so much about being in the presence of this Rebbe for 
lack of a better term, there's a spiritual master in the Hasidic style. So among the things that I'm most interested in when it comes to Reb Zalman, who was a kind of religious polymath, is the interreligious work that he did. And part of what I wanna try and demonstrate are the ways in which his evolving interreligious vision, in fact, dovetailed with his unfolding vision of Jewish spiritual renewal in North America. So I wanna begin simply by offering you a biographical sketch and we're not gonna go through the whole list here, but I want to make sure that I touch upon a few important elements. First of all, Reb Zalman was born in 1924 in Poland. And he was born into a family of Shochtim, which in Hebrew or Yiddish means ritual slaughters, which is why his family name is Shechter. And they fled Poland um, soon after Reb Zalman's birth and moved to Austria, where they hoped and prayed they would have greater freedom. His parents were both affiliated with the Belzer Hasidim, one of the dynasties in Poland, but they saw themselves as being more modern. And in their own ways, um, we might say were somewhat iconoclastic. Um, nothing like their son would turn out to be, but uh, they prayed several different synagogues. They insisted that their son be educated both in religious and secular environments. Reb Zalman talked about going from Siudashli Shit in an Orthodox context, and then after Havdalah going to a secular Zionist Saturday night <laughs> gathering and singing and dancing there. And he said, as a young person, it was dizzying, but recognized, of course, that his parents prepared him for what he considered his shlichut, his, his work in this world, uh, which was to be a bridge builder and someone that crossed thresholds and, and boundaries in unusual ways. So Reb Zalman and his family, tragically, like so many others, um, tried to outrun the Nazis. And thank God, in their case, they were able to do so. But it involved a circuitous route and one that involved hopscotching between safe havens and not such safe places um, as the Nazis became more powerful and more threatening. And the first time that he actually met Chabad Hasidim was in 1939. Why do I say that with a note of importance? Because he was in fact ordained as a Chabad rabbi. He and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, as some of you may know, were actually the first two Chabad shlichim, the first two emissaries that were sent out to college and university campuses beginning in 1949 to try and spread a renewed consciousness about Jewish spirituality that was engineered by the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe and then continued and developed immensely by the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe so that today, anywhere where you can buy a Coke, you can find a Chabad house. But it started in 1949 with these two young Chabad students, Zalman and Shlomo. But it was in Belgium, in fact, that he encountered Chabad for the first time. And he says that part of what was so important about that experience is that the Chabad Nikim that he met in Antwerp were an unusual group. 
they were a group of diamond cutters and polishers. And Reb Zalman was trying to make a little bit of money while his family was zigzagging their way, trying to find freedom. And so this group of Hasidim, of Chabad Hasidim, would sit in a circle, he says, and the leader of the group, as they polished and cut with all kinds of mechanical noises, the leader of the group would hold a microphone in hand and would read to them various sacred texts, especially those from the lineage of Chabad. Um, but he says, importantly, they also read modern European literature and philosophy. And that was his introduction to Hasidism and to Chabad specifically as a young man. And he considers it, you know, a very significant event in his life because as you would imagine as a 15 or 16 year old boy whose family was trying to escape the Nazis, he had a lot of questions and doubts. And he said it was among these people in which he was able to articulate existential questions, doubts, and also where he felt like he was encouraged to explore what God might mean to him in ways that were more mature and sophisticated than he had received to date. As I said, Reb Zaman and his family were fortunate. They were among the few that escaped. And that involved a short period of internment in France, in work camps, but then they made their way to Brooklyn, New York in 1941. Reb Zaman, in fact, had met Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson while in Antwerp, but had no idea who he was. He just remembers that he was this very well-dressed Western looking man who was a wonderful teacher, very erudite and worldly. And he joined the Chabad Yeshiva and the sixth Rebbe, the Rebbe who's known now um, as the Friedeke Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, because the seventh Rebbe became this larger-than-life figure in North American Jewish and general culture. So his father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe, was very generous to Zalman's family. Not only did he find an apartment for them, he set up his parents and Zalman with a furrier business in their apartment and referred clients to them and he set up Zalman and his siblings in schools. And as I said a few moments ago, Reb Zalman became a part of a vanguard of Chabadnikim, as they're called, who went out with great zeal, great messianic yearning, in fact, in the ashes of the Holocaust. There was great ferment within the Chabad circles. And one of the slogans was that people should repent as fervently and as quickly as possible because the Mashiach was on the way. And Reb Zalman says that he really believed that. He was swept up in it. And the sixth Rebbe began this campaign to send out young Chabad rabbis essentially to serve in Jewish missionary roles. This Rebbe felt like Judaism had been nearly extinguished and Hasidism had been badly 
beaten down. Many of the great teachers and communities were utterly destroyed. And he felt like this could be the birth pangs of the messianic era. Here was this sherit, this remnant of this once large Hasidic community that they were a part of, and they somehow escaped. And so he sent out these young men and Reb Zalman became very passionate about the work. The Rebbe was very smart. He sent out two very charismatic, very bright, very creative young men to try and speak to Jewish youth. And as we'll see in a moment, the first place that he was sent to was in New Haven, Connecticut in 1946. And from there began for the next several years serving as a shaliach. And as you survey the rest of this biographical outline, take note of a few names that we will look at more carefully. Among them are Howard Thurman, the great African-American theologian, activist and preacher. Timothy Leary, who was the iconoclastic professor from Harvard when Reb Zalman met him accidentally in, in the early 60s. He was not yet the bad boy of the counterculture movement. Others included Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, and later in life, the Dalai Lama. Reb Zalman served in a variety of different contexts, and that included his first somewhat challenging, mostly unsuccessful years as a pulpit rabbi, and then Hillel work for many, many years in Canada. And then of course he served as a professor both at Temple and later in life at Naropa University, which is the only Buddhist inspired university in the West. And Reb Zalman died in June, 2014. And when he died, of course, he was looked upon widely as an, as an elder, as a sage, as a bridge builder, and as someone that brought together in visionary ways, the wisdom of the old world with the postmodern realities that he was so engaged with until his dying days. How did Reb Zalman get involved in interfaith work? Well, the truth of the matter is that as a child, as I said, his parents were quite open. And so he remembers a babysitter taking him to a church. She didn't tell his parents in this case, but she was a devout Catholic and she took Reb Zalman who was four or five years old to a church. And he said that he had very vivid memories of the candles and of the incense and of the people praying. He liked to tell a funny story. He said throughout a period of his childhood, he thought that all men were Jewish and all women were Catholic. Why? Because when he went to shul, when he went to the synagogue with his father, there were only men there. And when his babysitter <laughs> would whisk him away to church, there were only women praying there. And so he thought the world was divided between Jewish men and Catholic women. But the, the, the experience of that church and the, the um, aesthetics and the sensorial experience 
were things that stayed with Reb Zalman for, for years to come. And he was by nature, a deeply curious and searching person. So in front of you on the right is a book called Difficulties in Mental Prayer. How did Reb Zalman come upon this book? In 1946, he was sent out, as I said, by the sixth Rebbe to serve as a shaliach, essentially to create you know, yeshiva day school programs and after school programs in New Haven. And so he thought that if he was gonna work with children and youth, he should learn more about child development. And so he went to a local public library and on the new acquisitions table was this volume and he was stunned by it. Here was what we would now describe an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic man who had spent several years intensely studying and grooming himself to become a, a Hasidic emissary. And lo and behold, he said, he saw this and another book on the new acquisitions table that would change his life. What was so moving about this book by this monk, Eugene Boylan? It intrigued me for outside Lubavitch Hasidism, no Jews I had yet encountered even mentioned the reality and nature of mental prayer. Over the next few weeks, difficulties in mental prayer wakened my soul to the realization that other religions besides Judaism hold real wisdom and effective methods for drawing closer to God. And when he expanded upon that sentiment, he said quite honestly, and with some embarrassment at the time, he believed that only Hasidim understood how to cultivate their inner lives. And among Hasidim, it was only the school or the dynasty of Lubavitch that really understood and was methodical about cultivating one's soul through prayer and meditation. And lo and behold, he was shocked, amazed, and disoriented to discover that here was this Irish monk that was talking about what he would have called in Hebrew or Yiddish things like machshavot <laughs> zarot, right? Strange or alien thoughts that disturb you in prayer or meditation, or hitlahavut, a sense of ecstasy, or fill in the blanks of all of the currents and movements internal that the spiritual masters of Hasidism and Kabbalah speak about. And lo and behold, there were analogs in this very different culture. And then Reb Zalman goes on to say something fascinating, retrospectively, ever since I discovered Boylan's inspiring book back in 1948, I'd been intrigued by Catholic spiritual insights into prayer. Many of the monks radiated a sense of selfless piety and devotion to God that resonated well with the rabbinic training I had received from Chabad Lubavitch. Participating with the monks in fervently reciting the Psalms opened my heart. We'll come back to that in a moment, but you see what an impression this book made on Reb Zalman. And beginning in the mid to late 1940s, he began to explore more. And he moved between communities in Connecticut and New York, but became a member of small clergy associations in those towns and communities. And 
that eventually led him into relationship with the man at the bottom of the screen. In 1955, Reb Zalman, with the permission now of the seventh Rebbe, of Menachem Mendel Schneerson, with the permission of the Rebbe, which tells you something about the nature of their relationship at this point, he was still asking permission, <laughs> enrolled at Boston University in the School of Theology with a particular interest in the psychology of religion. And Reb Zalman always was as interested or more interested in psychology, in pedagogy, and practice as he was in theology. And so he enrolled in the program and he really didn't know who Howard Thurman was. Thurman, for those of you that do not still know who he was, was the Dean of Marsh Chapel. He was the first African-American Dean at a major university in the United States. And he was a professor of sacred practices. And he himself was a very experimental educator. So one of the things that he insisted upon for all of his courses was that in addition to whatever students did in the lecture hall, they also had to have labs, right? Borrowing from the sciences, but they had to be experiential labs in which, for example, he would have the students read a particular Psalm and then listen to various forms of music to try and integrate those experiences in different ways. He would have students write original poetry and engage in visual arts as part of his pedagogic practices. And Zalman was just in love with it. But their relationship now famously started in a, in a funny and, and powerful way. Reb Zalman was taking some summer courses at BU to prepare um, for being a graduate student. And he left New Bedford, which is about an hour and a half outside of Boston, before he could dive in Shachris, <laughs> before he could say the morning prayer. Why? Because it was still dark out and he had morning classes. So he went to BU and lo and behold, he finds that there are no buildings open and there's a new beautiful building called Marsh Chapel. And it's about six or 6.30 in the morning and Reb Zalman enters and he thinks he's ready for this because he's joined the clergy association and he's a kind of autodidact and polymath and he's reading you know, voraciously on things, Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, already Buddhist as well. And he goes in and he enters the main chapel and it's full of iconography of Jesus and the apostles. And he says, I can't dive in here. <laughs> I just can't do this. Um, and then he goes downstairs to the small chapel and there there's a big brass cross <laughs> at the front of the room. And he says, I am not ready for this. And so he finds uh, the memorabilia room and in the memorabilia room, which is a kind of neutral kosher site, he puts on his talus and tefillin and begins davening. And he says that a, a tall, unassuming African-American man dressed very casually comes over to him and says, why are you praying in the memorabilia room? And Reb Zalman tries to explain to him sort of muttering about iconography and so forth and so on. And the man says, okay, 
why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll try and find a better place for you to pray. So Reb Zalman comes back the next day and this man whose identity he still does not know, in fact, he says, I assumed with bias and prejudice in 1955, at 6.30 in the morning, that this was the janitor. And the man says nothing about who he is. He escorts him into that smaller chapel the next day. The brass cross is placed to the side of the room and covered. The lectern is covered with a beautiful kind of whatever it might be, tablecloth. Two brass candles are lit and this beautiful ornate Bible uh, is placed on the lectern and is opened to Psalm 139. And there, as you see on the right, what Reb Zalman <laughs> comes to do with this man in a very beautiful and nuanced way is they play a game of interreligious hospitality in nonverbal ways, using the Psalms as cues. So this man sets up the room for Reb Zalman and then Reb Zalman resets it for the Christian worshipers. And 139, of course, is about the ubiquity of God and the ways in which we are bound up with God. It happened to be Howard Thurman's favorite <laughs> Psalm 139. Spoiler alert, this man is Howard Thurman, the mystery man. And Reb Zalman winks and turns the Bible to Psalm 100. Right, a kind of amazing way of communicating because it is a mizmor of toda. And sooner or later, uh, depending on the version of the story that Reb Zalman <laughs> told, and he was wonderful as a storyteller, and his interreligious stories he actually told like Hasidic stories. When he met great personalities or had epiphanies, it didn't matter where it happened or how it happened. If there was something that was teachable in his mind, he wanted to share it. And he told it with you know, great gusto. So he learns that Howard Thurman, in fact, was the same man when Reb Zalman wants to enroll in a course in the spring, the following spring, and it is on spiritual resources with labs. And he knocks on the door and he's somewhat embarrassed and Thurman says nothing about their earlier encounter and just welcomes him. And at a certain point in the conversation, Reb Zalman says, I want to do this, but I don't know if my anchor chains are long enough, which is to say, I don't know that I'm moored enough in my own religious conviction and my own development spiritually to be guided by a Christian. Remember, this is 1955. This is before the Second Vatican Council. This is a man, by the way, who is still a recent refugee from Nazi-occupied Germany. So the fact that he's crossed these thresholds already is quite unusual. And apparently what Thurman says to Zalman kind of knocked his socks off. <laughs> he says to Zalman, as he's contemplating the question and understanding that Reb Zalman's nervous about this older established minister trying to convert him, as was the case for centuries with Christians and Jews. He says, but don't you believe in the Ruach HaKodesh? <laughs> And Zalman is sort of amazed. And of course, Thurman, who was masterful pedagogically, did that very intentionally, right? He said those words, the Holy Spirit in Hebrew. And Zalman said he sort of was floored. Um, 
and it really caused him to think very deeply about, you know, was, was he able to do this? And the decision he reached was yes. And he went on, you know, to study intensely with Thurman for the rest of that semester and maintained a, a relationship, an important relationship with him for many years to come. Recently, I found a sermon that Thurman gave in 1963, by which point Zalman was in Winnipeg serving as Hillel director and professor of Jewish studies. And he invites Thurman to come and visit and lecture at the university. And Thurman describes a day that only Zalman could orchestrate, <laughs> which involved among other things, Thurman blessing Zalman and his son who was about to become a bar mitzvah boy <laughs> privately in the local college chapel. And Thurman says, I had never done this before. I had done many things. I had met with Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> I had mentored Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I had had several Jewish students, but never was I asked to bless my student and his child at this powerful liminal intergenerational moment. And um, it was a profound experience for all of them to, uh, to say the least. And of course, for anyone that's familiar with Hasidism, you can see that the way that Reb Zalman was interacting with Thurman was the way that many Hasidim interact with their Rebbeim, with their Jewish spiritual masters. And in fact, Reb Zalman came to describe Howard Thurman lovingly as his black or African-American Rebbe. And that was, a, that was a term, you know, that he reserved for very few people. Another person with whom Reb Zalman became very close a few years later was Thomas Merton. If Thurman was his black Rebbe or his Christian Rebbe, then Merton in some ways was his Chavrusa, was the kind of older study partner and friend. And they began to correspond and mostly corresponded through letters. And thankfully those letters have been saved. And I'm working with another editor and scholar on gathering those and publishing them because it's really an interesting treasure trove of two people that would become among the most significant religious leaders in North America in the 20th century. Merton and Zalman meet because Zalman has a student from Manitoba that goes to become a rabbi at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And he says, if you're going to Cincinnati, you must take the three hour drive to Bardstown, Kentucky and visit Thomas Merton. He's one of the great spiritual teachers of our generation, and this should be a part of your rabbinic education. And there, the student conveys this to Merton, and Merton and Zalman begin to correspond. And when Zalman reflected back on what was it that drew these two men together, he says, Merton and I were both interested in the upaya, which of course is already an interesting way of describing a relationship between a Jew and a Christian by using a Sanskrit Hindu term, but that was Reb Zalman, right? Always trying to meld and blend, which by the way, you know, is, <clears throat> is characteristic not only of him, but many spiritual seekers, particularly, right, in the beat hippie and new age eras. Um, Reb Zalman, I think, can be accurately described as 
Catherine Albanese, who's a who's a scholar of New Age religion, calls a combinative thinker or actor. And Reb Zalman was was so adroit, so adept at weaving together different traditions. And so he says, what they were interested in was the skillful means that people use for transformation. What helps us with tikkun hamidot, repair of one's attributes, and conversatio morum, fidelity to monastic life, which really means renewing one's vows every day and growing into the person you aspire to be. How do I move from my is to my ought? And that was the experience that Reb Zalman wanted to cultivate with Merton. I want to share with you too also some of the creative ways in which Zalman learned from these early experiences and particularly from these two men and others and how he incorporated it into his vision of what would become Jewish renewal. So here is Howard Thurman. This is one of the most famous pieces. It's been republished dozens and dozens of times. Parker Palmer, for example, has developed um, teaching around Thurman's work and especially around this notion of the growing edge. All around us worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. All around us life is dying and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree, the roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against a time when there shall be new lives, fresh blossoms, green fruit. Such is the growing edge. It is the extra breath from the exhausted lung the one more thing to try when all else has failed, the upward reach of life when weariness closes in upon all endeavor. This is the basis of hope in moments of despair, the incentive to carry on when times are out of joint and men have lost their reason, the source of confidence when worlds crash and dreams whiten into ash, the birth of a child, life's most dramatic answer to death. This is the growing edge incarnate. Look well to the growing edge. And notice, of course, here, in addition to the beautiful poetics and its resonance for our moment in many ways, that he says the birth of a child, any child, right, is an experience of incarnation. And Thurman was unusual in his teaching, in his insistence that the figure of Jesus Christ be regarded as a human as a Jew who was living in the Roman Empire and was therefore an eternal symbol and model of spiritual resistance. And in fact, Thurman's most famous work is called Jesus and the Disinherited. And it is a book that, um, that King and Abernathy and countless other civil rights activists carried with them. It was considered and still considered you know, among the great theological works of the civil rights movement. Here is how Zalman <laughs> integrates this notion of the growing edge into his vision of Judaism, of renewal. And notice how he's weaving together the strands of all the lessons of Hasidism. So here he's talking about his own tradition from which he has come forth, Eastern European mystical piety, of all the lessons of Hasidism, the most important one to me is the imperative to remain on the growing edge of the Jewish tradition. In its early days, Hasidim was a radical movement attempting to revitalize its relationship with God 
and with Yiddishkeit. The Baal Shem Tov, right, the first great master in Hasidism, modeled this passion for revitalization in his introduction into Jewish life of the quality of mamish, truly. While prior Jewish thinkers preached about God, he actually went out and showed people that God's glory, mamish, fills the whole earth. That little snippet from Isaiah is probably the best encapsulation of the message of the Baal Shem Tov and of early Hasidism. Taste and see, <laughs> right? God is here and present, mamish, and that people of all walks of life can experience the divine. Conservatives, and here he means conservatives of different ilks, <laughs> want to be in the center where things are safe. But as with a tree, the center is dead matter. The Hasidim didn't abandon the tradition, but they lived on the edge, seeking to renew it. We must do the same. Right? That notion of living on the growing edge is Zalman's inimical <laughs> pioneering way of braiding the strands from various spiritual masters, what he called great technicians of the spirit, including Hasidim, the Baal Shem Tov, and Howard Thurman. And Thurman, as I said to you, was in his own right an iconoclast. He, for example, among the other things that I spoke about, co-pastored one of the first interracial churches in the United States in the 1930s and 40s. It was Thurman who led the first mission to meet with Gandhi and other nonviolent activists in India and who brought that back to the United States and taught folks like King that methodology. Zalman, as I said before, was an incredibly curious, sometimes naive, and, um, and passionate seeker. And this is how he described himself um, later in life as he was reflecting. He says, and like Picasso who had a blue period and this and that kind of period, I had a Catholic period, I had a Protestant period, I had a Hindu period, I had a Buddhist period and a Sufi period. And of course, through this all, I didn't stop being a Hasid and a Jew. It was just as if the flavoring and the accompanying strain, what gave harmony to my melody and gave rhythm to what I was doing was taken from that other tradition. You know, it's fascinating. Reb Zaman also self-mockingly would, would often describe himself as a spiritual peeping Tom. <laughs> he loved to see, to observe, to engage in conversation, to walk, to meditate with practitioners from other realms. And he, of course, had his own boundaries, right? It wasn't boundless, but he also was a person that was oftentimes guided by intuition. Now, one of the challenges, of course, for those of us that follow in his footsteps, is to think about questions of how open, how closed, when, where, what are our own limits? What are the limits too for our students and for community members? How do you, how do you participate in the necessary and sacred work of Jewish continuity and at the same time remain open? And of course, when you're talking about Zalman or a figure like Abraham Joshua Heschel, right? Another great kind of interreligious cross-cultural activist and teacher, 
You're also talking about people that had extraordinary life experiences that um, are mostly unavailable to us. In fact, parts of them will be forever unavailable to us, right? How many people grow up in a modern Orthodox, <laughs> you know, Austrian Polish family with Belzer grandparents and then meet unusual diamond cutting Chabad Hasidim <laughs> and then spend a decade with not one, but two of the great rabbis in one of the great spiritual dynasties of Hasidism, and then onward and so forth and so on. And Zalman also, as he aged, recognized that he was a risk taker and uh, was a boundary breaker. And, um, you know, he became, he became um, introspective about those questions. And I remember personally him saying to me on more than one occasion, you don't need to try everything that I tried. Um, I don't want you to deny your own life experience as it unfolds, but if I can give you some wisdom, right? <laughs> you don't need to try everything. Um, so for example, while he was moving from stage to stage, from period to period in the same period, you know, where he really begins to take shape as it were, as an interreligious practitioner, I said before he meets Timothy Leary. He meets Leary in 1963, how? Because he's working at Camp Ramah, which for Zalman also was you know, a risk. Not most Hasidim taught or worked at Camp Ramah. <laughs> but as Zalman entered the world of Hillel and of academia, he also met extraordinary non-Hasidic, non-Orthodox Jews that completely changed his understanding of what pluralism meant within the Jewish community. And so his interreligious and his intra-Jewish growth were happening at one and the same time. He had heard about psychedelics. He had heard about research that was being done at Harvard. He's at Camp Ramah. He takes a group of students to various sacred sites in and around New England. He goes to an ashram on the Cape in Cohasset, and there's a guy there, and he overhears that that's Timothy Leary, you know, this, this unusual research professor from Harvard. And so he asks Leary if he can trip with him. <laughs> and Leary says, yes, remember psychedelics at this point were still legal. Um, and the next week, Zalman goes and has this first trip with Leary. Zalman, by the way, prepares for it by going into the mikvah, the ritual bath. He comes dressed in white and wearing a talis. He brings, you know, various sfarim with him, you know, sacred books. And he has what he describes as being a mind-altering experience in which the descriptions of unity and of interconnection that he has read about for years in mystical texts, right, become real in, which way, in, in ways he couldn't imagine or he could only imagine. It's interesting, he decides that he needs to write about the experience too, which got him in a lot of hot water. He wrote about it and circulated among rabbis and Jewish scholars. He talked about it, you know, in Chabad circles and then became very excited about psychedelics. And to him, he said, if we read about all of these mystical practices, including ingesting various things and drinking things and chanting and singing and dancing ecstatically, how is this any different? Is this really very different from 
what the Baal Shem Tov and others describe, you know, as their aliyot, as their soul ascensions. Chabad didn't quite see it that way. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the breaking points for them was that Reb Zalman was speaking so openly and so passionately about psychedelics uh, in the mid 60s. Going back for a moment, I just wanna share with you a couple of other pieces and then I'd love to hear some of your reactions because um, to me, as you can hear, uh, and you can tell from my body language, I find this so fascinating um, and really important because in part, some of the things that Reb Zalman did that were iconoclastic are now considered you know, a part of mainstream Jewish life, many things that he did. Um, but again, at the time, uh, most people were not doing these things. In early 1962, I had eagerly finalized plans to visit Merton at Gethsemane, that's the name of his Trappist monastery, in the upcoming summer. I will always remember the August day. It was already evening when I arrived at the gate, at, I arrived and the gate was officially closed. To my dismay, the entrance bell announcing visitors was attached to a rope with a cross at its end. And as a Hasidic rabbi, I really didn't want to grasp the cross but it was necessary to pull the rope in order to ring the bell. After a moment's thought, I grabbed the rope above the cross, right, it's a shinui. <laughs> I grabbed the rope above the cross and yanked. The bell instantly rang. Suddenly a Trappist monk emerged from the shadows where he had obviously been standing silently all along, striding over, he opened the gate for me and said, smiling, an interesting solution to a problem of conscience. Right? And Zalman remembered that story for decades because it's a quintessential story about spiritual seekers who are grounded in their own traditions, but who also are invested in meeting and learning from one another and grappling with questions of borders and boundaries. And this individual who knew nothing about Reb Zalman's experience in Eastern Europe and Central Europe in Chabad understood that this man, right, was experiencing a problem of conscience. And Reb Zalman would often say that he met people in other traditions who seemed to intuitively understand, right, his goals, his aspirations, his dreams, his pains in ways that many Jews would never be interested in. And the way that he eventually in his older age, in the last decades of his life, began to articulate a kind of theological vision was he talked about religions as being a part of the world as an organism. And he likened it to a body and would say, for example, here, the world needs Jews to be the best possible Jews. It needs Muslims to be the best possible Muslims. But this also requires that we cultivate a synergistic relationship in which we are growing together, sharing the vital nutrients of our traditions with one another. Our very existence depends on it. And in his own growth from the period that I was exploring with you, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, he says that he emerged, that when he came to the United States and went out as a Chabadnik, what he was most interested in was a restoration theology. How do I recreate as much as possible of what was lost in the Holocaust. And then he meets people like Howard Thurman and Thomas Merton and Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, of course, who's Ramdas, et cetera, et cetera. 
So let me wind down um, by simply saying that uh, I, I have been blessed to be involved in reading and researching Reb Zalman's legacy for the last several years. And one of the projects is this collection of teachings. Uh, it's a new book, relatively speaking. Um, Orbis Books, which is a wonderful Catholic press, has a series called Modern Spiritual Masters. And in it are people like Thurman and Merton and the Dalai Lama and many other people that Reb Zalman loved, respected. The one other Jewish person in the series, as you might guess, is Abraham Joshua Heschel. And so it's, uh, it feels to me appropriate um, that Reb Zalman has been added to this, to this august list of spiritual teachers. So I'll pause there. I probably went a little bit longer than I should have. I wasn't looking at the chat, but I would love- Amazing. Amazing. Love your- yeah, yeah. This, this has been fascinating. So uh, I've got many questions, but, I, but I'll hold off. So <laughs> I'd love to hear from some others. Um, feel free to unmute yourself and share a question, a question for Rabbi Rose. Okay, I'm going to jump in with the first while, while yeah. others are preparing themselves. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think most interfaith work today is not God-centered, but ethic-centered, mm -hmm. right? We are working towards justice. We are working towards peace. We are working towards human rights. And we will be tolerant and pluralistic and respectful of our faith differences. And maybe we'll touch on theology. For, but it seems for Absalman, this is really God-centric. It's really God-centric. Um, but I wonder, how does, how does the justice piece or ethics piece play out within the value of experiencing other faiths at all? Great question. So <laughs> let me try and answer it or begin to answer it in the following way. Reb Zalman is, as I said, a synthetic kind of thinker. You know, he's always trying to weave together different strands. And part of that was his coming of age spiritually in the beat and hippie era, a tumultuous and transformative time, you know, in American history and culture. And so being the kind of autodidact that he was, he read very widely and was very moved by people like Allen Ginsberg, Herbert Marcuse, who you probably had to read in graduate school, Shmuley, um, Abby Hoffman, et cetera, you know? But he was, not, he was not mostly engaged in political activism. Less so, in fact, than either uh, Thomas Merton or Howard Thurman. The ethos of his emerging vision of Jewish renewal was of course influenced by all of those trends. And he became clearly, you know, a countercultural Jewish religious leader. But much of that energy was about tikkun hamidot for him. That was the locus by and large of his avoda. It's interesting because he attracted many people who came to Judaism or chose to make their Jewish lives much more focused around social justice. You know, two of the obvious examples are Arthur Waskow and Michael Lerner, both of whom 
consider themselves to be, you know, disciples of Reb Zalman. They were ordained by him. And in both of their cases, like many others, they also saw Heschel as another model. One could say, of course, that for Reb Zalman, right, the, the ethical was bound up in the spiritual projects that he was undertaking. And over time, right, he wove those into his program, if you will, for Jewish renewal. So early on, relative to many others, right, he ordained women as rabbis. The renewal movement, again, early engaged LGBTQ folks. Um, Reb Zalman became increasingly passionate about environmental justice. And you can see from even the few things we looked at why that would be the case in terms of this organismic vision. But he was not a frontline activist in that sense. In that regard, I would argue who is more like um, Thurman than Heschel or Merton. Thurman was criticized, you should know, because he was this great spiritual, theological, pastoral presence, but he never considered himself a movement man. And Reb Zalman, as he aged, also, I think, felt like he had a particular shlichut and that, you know, that, that became more refined. And I asked him about that. And he said, there are other people that could do parts of that work much better than I can. And I'm, I'm better suited to do, you know, this kind of work, right? I think above all else, he would consider himself a daviner. <laughs> but he believed that davening was transformative. He believed that prayer and meditation and, you know, activities like that were essential to changing any kind of external realities. And by the way, if you look, um, which I, you know, I'm just researching now about different strands of countercultural um, activity, which he was a part of, you can see that there are different responses to what, you know, young people, he was somewhat older than that generation, but participated in it very actively. I think that's part of what kept him fresh and <laughs> engaged was that he spent time with a lot of younger people. Some of those became members of the new left, right? And some of them became hippies in more cultural ways. And I think you can see some of that, you know, in, in his work and in his life. Great. So I hope that's a helpful. Very helpful. Very helpful. All right, someone else, anyone else have a question here? Yes, hi, Nancy. Hi, I wanted to add something. Every thing you said, or I agree with 100%. And one last thing, one footnote I would add is there's a wonderful videotape of when he spoke at Romamu and he was interviewed there by David Ingber. And then in the Q&A, somebody gets up and says, I think Romamu is great, but why can't you guys do more social justice work? <laughs> and um, Brad Zalman jumped in to answer the question. And one of the things he said was that, um, and I agree with everything you said about Reb Zalman knowing who he was and knowing who Arthur Waskow was, et cetera. But he said what he said at that in that interview, and it's worth watching the whole video, is um, you know, a lot of people came to Romamu because they were doing all that other stuff already. And they right. had been to reform temples their whole childhood and heard that is what Judaism is. And they were looking for the something else. They were looking for the loophole in, not the loophole out of the law, but the loophole into the law. And so uh, that's, I just wanted to add. Right, that. right. And by the way, you know, Zalman, as I said, was, was close with several people, Merton, Heschel, and others from the reform and conservative movement who he considered to be close friends, mentors, teachers, 
who were very involved in that in that work. Um, and yet he felt like his shlichus was really about spirituality. Um, yeah. And part of what motivated him too, I should say, for all of his universalism, he also was deeply pained by the fact that many young Jews who he encountered thought of Judaism as being boring, dull, insipid, vapid, right? Um, he said from time to time he would go to these holy man jams that were popular in the 60s and 70s before there were also holy women jams and everyone would speak or teach or chant. And he said, I would occasionally bring with me a copy um, of the Tanya, <laughs> you know, which is the masterwork of Chabad, you know, a translation of it. And I just deposit it in a corner of a Zendo <laughs> or, you know, some other space because inevitably there would be a certain number of Jews there. You know, okay, let me, let me ask you one last question, picking up on that. Yeah. So so um, what, would he, what would he argue as the most unique or poignant Jewish spiritual contribution? Now, there's two ways to frame that. Uh, as as uh, Picking up on Jews who don't think Judaism is spiritual, what would he say, here is your inroad that yeah. you should experience? And export, if he was in an interfaith dialogue, what would he argue, what would he suggest as a Jewish experience that Gentiles should participate in? So I would, I would say unequivocally he would, he would say um, Shabbat and Kashrut. Oh, wow. And he would say that the world as a whole needs a greater Sabbath consciousness. He wasn't interested in having people necessarily spend 24 plus hours, uh, you know, Friday to Saturday practicing Shabbat in a traditional manner as he did and many others do, but he felt like a Sabbath consciousness was absolutely essential. And in that regard, he was a very close student of Heschel's. And both of them, I think, were influenced by their experience of escaping Nazi Germany, which was considered, of course, at the time, the great center of modern technological and cultural advancement. And lo and behold, they created the greatest killing machines in the history of humankind. For Reb Zalman too, and this, and this bridges with the, with the notion of kashrut, Right, Shabbat also taught us to live in harmony with creation. Um, and he, he described it as organic time. He's, he reflected in the same ways about Shacharit, Minchan, Mariv. When do we pray? We pray in rhythm with light and darkness of each and every day. And that led to Kashrut. And here too, I think he was inspired in part by Heschel. Because Heschel would ask his students in a provocative way, in a polemical way, um, the conservative movement is arguing about whether certain kinds of cheese is kosher, right? That might have animal um, elements in it, etc. He said, but is the H-bomb kosher? You know, that was sort of his way of <laughs> shocking the students and moving them, you know, from what he considered katnut to gadlut, wow. you know, from wow. minor, minor to major. And, and Zalman picked up on that and ran with it. Really, Zalman was the first person that began to talk about echo kashrut. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, he, he uh, Rabbi Rose, to wrap up, he, he, Reb Zalman only called me, he, Reb Zalman called me one time. <laughs> I was on a bus and he was, he was talking Yiddish. I think he just assumed for some reason because yeah. I'm Shmuley. Yeah. Because I'm Shmuley, I know Yiddish or something. But right. I, don't know any, I don't know any Yiddish. 
And so he's, and then he, and then he keeps yelling, Achtis Yisrael, Achtis Yisrael, Jewish unity. And what he was saying was, I was working on an ethical yes. project at the time. And he was saying, you're representing a traditionalist camp in the ethical kashrut. There's all these progressive Jews who are pushing a, a more progressive approach to ethical kashrut. Bring them in, work together. And he, was, right. and he called, he wanted, and he was yelling at me about it, like in a, in a friendly way, you know. But Yes, <laughs> yes. He, was, he was all of those years removed, still in some ways a Chabad shaliach. Yeah, if right. Dalman became excited about something and he felt that it was important, it didn't matter who, who you were. <laughs> how well-known or little-known you were, he would reach out. You know, so with Merton, for example, he said, why shouldn't I be friends with the most well-known Christian mystical thinker of the 20th century, right? Um, we think alike. We have the same priority. So I'll call him, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll write him. And so, you know, he, he heard about what you were doing and that, and that mattered more and more to him, by the way, Shmuley, at the end of his life, yeah. which is, he had experimented in a whole variety of ways and he created a movement and he was a mentor to the creators of the Chavura movement. And by extension, of course, he and they influenced, you know, liberal Judaism writ large and traditional Judaism ways that many people are not willing to see or admit. But he also recognized that more and more there was a polarization and it, and it troubled him deeply and he wasn't quite sure what to do with it, but he struggled with it in part because his children and grandchildren also made different decisions. Some of them in their individuation became Orthodox again and traditional Hasidim. Right, right, beautiful. For, um, uh, Rabbi Rose, this was fantastic. I hope friends will pick up his book and we look forward to more opportunities to learn with you. Um, just a reminder that, that tomorrow we're learning with Rabbi Arya Bernstein about police brutality and racism um, at 11 o'clock in Phoenix time. And then Thursday, we're learning with Professor Joy Layden, uh, Transgender Interpretations of Torah. She's a Yeshiva University transgender woman. And lots of other things coming up. Rabbi Rose, thank you. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Shmuley. Keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you. Have a great day.